I finally uh, realized. I finally realized what it, what I would need to do to get uh, Titus, my nine-month-old grandson, to uh, let Grandpa hold him. I haven't had a chance to try this yet, but last week it, the the thinking crystallized. And, uh, you know, I was suffering more of his rejection last week and, and remembering, you know, I had the same problem with grandson number one because they live in Wenatchee and we're over here. We didn't see him very much in those first couple of years. And, and you know, he, he was kind of holdbackish. And, and uh, so uh, one time when we were having uh, dinner with them uh, at their house in Wenatchee, I think it was uh, Thanksgiving, and uh, there was a can of whipped cream on the table. And I looked over and I said, hey, you want some whipped cream? And he said, yeah. I said, come here, open your mouth. (laughs) Gave him a big blast of whipped cream in his mouth, and I went from zero to hero in one (laughs) fell swoop. Right there, ladies and gentlemen. There it is, yeah. A little bit of that, and you're good to go. Now, the problem with this is, mm, there's no problem at all, as a matter of fact. I just have to do it when my daughter isn't looking. (laughs) Um. You know, the common thinking with preaching is the same as with grandsons. If you give them whipped cream every week, they will fill your church. But the problem is, God has some things to say that aren't soft, sweet, and fluffy. God has some things that are wonderful and easy and welcome for us, but he also has some things that are a little tough. And 1 Corinthians 5 is definitely one of those passages that's kind of challenging for us. Let's follow, please, as I read 1 Corinthians 5, starting verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What we learned in verses 1 through 2 of this passage, uh, we learned just one truth in our first study, which was a mature Christian mourns over sin. In other words, we don't don't ignore it, we don't overlook it, we don't soft-pedal it. 
We grieve for sin. We grieve for sin in ourselves. We grieve for it in other people. We grieve for it in our church. And we do that because we understand the difficulties of sin. Christians, in, in, in verses 1 through 5, we learn that Christians have a significant responsibility to care for one another. We are God's hands and feet. God has chosen to work in us and through us as a body of believers, and, and we cannot shirk that responsibility, and sometimes that responsibility is heavy. It's challenging because people aren't living right. And then the thing that we learned last week from verse 6 is this, the failure to remove sin causes increasing spiritual ruin. God compares sin to leaven or yeast, the, something that raises bread up, and he says that is what sin is like. And so the longer it stays, the more impact it has, and that impact is always ruinous. It's always difficult. There is no good result from letting sin remain. And then today, what we're going to learn from verses 7 and 8 is this. Separation from sin honors our Savior. Separation from sin honors our Savior. The, the point of this path, the big point of chapter 5 is, as a body of believers, if somebody is rebelliously unrepentant about sin, we have to push them out so that God can work in them outside of the church, but we also have to push, it, push them out because we want to honor Christ. The first truth that we see here is this. Separation from sin is based in what we actually are in Christ. Look at verse 7. Therefore, purge out the sinful things so that you may be a new, fresh, clean, righteous thing since you truly are unleavened. Now again, the, the leaven, um, there is a little difference between the, this biblical word and the concept of leaven here and what we would call yeast. Um, I am not a good bread maker. I love a good piece of bread. Uh, but I know you, you go to the store and you buy that little yellow package or you buy it in a little jar and you, you take a little spoonful of yeast and you toss it in the water and put some sugar in there to feed it maybe and Make sure the water's warm. And that's our concept of making bread. The other concept, though, that is also very popular is called sourdough starter. You take some flour and some water and whatever else, and you let it sit there. And after a while, there's the stuff that is in flour to make itself start to rise, and then you feed it and so on. That's the kind of leavening being spoken of here. So we might call it a, a little more of a natural version of that. But he's using this, this idea, it's something that can be created. You don't have to go to buy the store and buy the yeast. This is a natural process. And he's using this imagery of, of making bread and the, the raising up of the bread to talk about sin and righteousness in the individual and the church. And of course, that, that imagery comes from the Passover. It comes from the, this great event in the Old Testament. When God was preparing to deliver Israel from slavery... He told his people to sacrifice a lamb and to sprinkle some of the blood from the lamb on the doorposts and the lintel or the, the framing above the door. That was what he told them to do. He said, slay this animal, put the blood there, then get inside under the blood, so to speak. It, it was a picture 
Obviously, they weren't covered in blood, and their house wasn't covered, but it was, it was a typical thing, a spiritual thing. He said, get inside and cook that lamb, roast that lamb, and eat that lamb with several things, including unleavened bread. The, the closest thing to a piece of unleavened bread to our way of thinking today would be a cracker, okay? That's basically what he was talking about. If you've ever seen Jewish matzah that is made today and sold for their for their feast, um, that's what it would be like. He said, get in the house, roast the lamb, eat it with the unleavened bread. Now, God didn't give them a reason for for leaving out the leaven at that moment. He did in a little bit, and, and I'll share that with you. But he said, I want you to be in there on a certain day, under the blood, with the unleavened bread, and I am gonna send the death angel through Egypt to to show my superiority and to punish them, and the firstborn of man and beast is going to die of everyone not covered by the blood. And so the death angel came through Egypt, and he passed over all who were covered by the blood, but if they were not covered by the blood, they were, uh, they suffered the, uh, the, uh, the impact of the death angel. Now, Once this happened, and if you remember the story of God delivering his people out of Egypt, you understand this was number 10. Can't do that with something in my hand. Number 10 of the plagues, okay? And there's a sense in which God started out kind of easy and worked his way down, but he got to this one, and he killed the firstborn of man and beast of everyone, except those covered by the blood. He passed over those who were covered by the blood. Now, once that happened... Once that happened, the Egyptians wanted the Jews to leave immediately. This text from the Old Testament tells us that. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. In other words, great fear came upon them, as it should have. And this is part of the reason God did this, all of the plagues. Remember God said, Moses, go down and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said yes, and then he said no. And he said yes, and he said no. And finally, when this plague on the firstborn came, they said, get out of here. They feared that there was going to be more and more death that was going to happen. So the people, the Jewish people, took their dough, their bread dough, before it was leavened. Now, keep the timing in mind. They have this feast in an evening And the death angel comes during the night and people wake up and they see all of this going on. And in that time, they would be making bread every day, every day, every day. So this is after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the next day and they've started their bread. And the Egyptians come and say, get out of here. And so they scoop up their bread still in the the bowl. Literally wrap it up and take it with them and so, they have, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their cloths, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. So the Egyptians say, get out of here. They pick it up, and, and they, they're heading out. They're going, this is what we've been waiting for, and they head out. And when it got to be lunchtime, they stopped and made a fire and cooked the bread. And 
If you know anything about making sourdough starter and then making sourdough bread, it doesn't happen in an instant, okay? And so there was the unleavened bread that God commanded at the Passover, and there was the unleavened bread that was the result, and here's the big deal. It was the result of leaving the old life and starting the new life. That's really the thing that's going on here. Um, God wasn't surprised by this. In his instructions about the Passover meal, he said this, you shall eat the Passover with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And so God had told them, have this feast, but keep your clothes on, keep your shoes on, be ready to go. And in, you know, within hours or however long it was, they were cast out. They had the Passover meal with the unleavened bread. The next morning, they're, here they are moving. And what we understand is that God used leavening in bread as a picture of leaving the old life behind. If they had made leavened bread in Egypt and then carried that bread with them, there's a sense in which they would be taking some of Egypt with them into the new life. God did this with them to teach them something and to teach us. And that's what 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, you are unleavened. He's talking about the difference between a person who has never believed in Christ and now here's a person who has believed in Christ. He says, that person is unleavened. The condition of his life has changed. This picture became a picture of the change that happens in those who believe in Christ. And it's summarized in this familiar verse. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We could say it this way in light of the imagery of 1 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new batch of dough. I should have called this sermon Doughboys. Creative juice always takes a while to kick in. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new batch of dough. The old yeast is gone. Behold, all things have become new. And so what God is telling us through Paul, through Paul's instruction to the Corinthians, he says, listen, stop and think about who you are and where you are. You are in Christ. You are a new creation. You are righteous before God. When an individual believes in Christ, his sin is forgiven, the righteousness of Christ is placed in him, and before God, he or she stands in complete righteousness. When God looks at us in heaven, he sees us through the blood of Christ, so he sees us sinlessly perfect, completely free of the old life. That's what it means to be born again, as Jesus said in John 3, 3. So we stand before God in the righteousness of Christ, but we also live in the daily reality of a human nature. And, 
and that human nature is tempted, and we have to make choices. And so separation from sin is based in what we are in Christ, but it also has to become an action of the Christian life. And this passage summarizes these two truths really well. If you were raised with Christ, when was that? When you believed in Christ. Then seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And where is God, and where is Christ? In heaven. That's where you are. You are there with them. And so he says, this is your reality. You are hidden with Christ in God. What you need to do is to make your earthly reality match your heavenly reality. We've got to see ourselves seated in heaven with God. And then, coming back to 1 Corinthians 5-7, we have to purge out the old leaven and become a new lump because that is our reality. Turn with me a page over to 1 Corinthians 6.15. Do you not know that your bodies, and I believe God uses the word body when he talks to us about our life on earth to indicate this is a whole life situation, In other words, there were some people in the time of Christ, as there are today, who would say, well, it's your thoughts that matter. What you do with your body doesn't matter. And God has always talked to us about a whole life, body and soul, mind and heart, everything together. Do you not know that your bodies have been connected? You are members of the body of Christ. When you believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit puts you into the person of Christ. You become in. Uh, organically connected. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot or a immoral person? Certainly not. Now in that passage, he's talking specifically about immorality, but the principle is the same. When we believed in Christ, we were put into the body of Christ. Yeah, I better not take Raul's music. I'll get in trouble. These notebooks have pages in which paper is inserted in. And he says, you, you were put into Christ. This is Christ. You're in there. You're one of the members of his body. You're a hand, you're a foot, you're an eye, you're a toe, whatever you are. You're part of the body of Christ. And as such, we have to say, am I going to take Christ? Am I going to take Christ and connect him with sin? Righteousness needs to be motivated by seeing ourselves in union with Christ, both in heaven and on earth. I'm seated with him in the heavenlies, But here on earth, I'm supposed to take him where he would want to go. If Christ came to our welcome room and sat down in the chair next to you and said, tell me about your life. How much of your life could you tell him about? 
If he said, can I stay at your house this week? Would you need to change your house at all? If he said, I'd love to see where you work, would you feel completely free to show him your work life? If he asked about your friends, hey, I'd like to meet your friends, can we hang out on Friday night? Is there any friends you'd say, I don't really want him to meet this one? Now, I understand there are some unbelievers we're trying to reach. But don't you think Jesus would want to meet an unbeliever you're trying to reach? But maybe there's some other friends in a different category. If he came to the elders meeting we will have in a couple of weeks on September 7th, and he talked to us about the church, what changes might he envision for us? If we had a member living in unrepentant sin, as this passage talks about, and we had a meeting to discuss our response to that member, and he was physically present at the meeting, would it change the discussion? The truth of 1 Corinthians 7 is this. We are unleavened. We are sinless before God, and we are united with Christ and so now we've got to take that life and, and infuse it into every part of our daily walk. Especially the church. Maybe perhaps we would say starting at the church. Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are in reality unleavened, sinlessly perfect. You are with Christ our Passover. Separation from sin must be seen as an action of the Christian life, but also separation from sin honors the Savior who died for us. Look at verse, um, verse uh, uh, seven again there. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And then he goes on to say, therefore, let us keep the feast in a certain way. Christ was sacrificed for us, and we need to respond to that. The Passover was more than just a one-day event. It became an annual event. It became a week-long festival, if you will. So this day, this Passover day, shall be to you a memorial, God said to, to Moses and by him to the children of Israel. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses, for whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, a holy meeting, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation. No manner of work shall be done on them, but, but that which everyone must eat only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread." For on this same day I will have brought out your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations. The Passover was this evening event, and the next day they were eating unleavened bread because they were cast out of Egypt. And so God said, going forward on the anniversary of the Passover, have another Passover in remembrance of what God did, and then have a seven-day feast, a worship feast, to honor God for the, for the deliverance that he gave to you. Once they were delivered from Egypt, they observed the Passover as a memorial. 
of God's deliverance. Now, here's a tricky question. Is there anything similar to that that we do here? What? Communion, the Lord's Supper. Okay, we don't call it the feast. God, through Paul, is using this this imagery from the Old Testament and kind of blending it together with the New Testament event. But we have a feast, we have a meal, the Lord's Supper, where we have bread to remember his physical sufferings and juice to remember the blood shed to pay for our sin. And, And I believe when he says, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven or sin, but let us keep it with righteousness. That's what he's talking about. Not not just the Lord's Supper, but the whole aspect of worship of Christ. We we sang songs of worship. We prayed and asked for God's help and, and expressed our appreciation to him. We are studying God's word to learn how to live for him. And when we go out of here, we will act either righteously or sinfully. And God seems to indicate through the scripture that all of those things are acts of worship to him. And so the the whole broad area of worship, separation from sin honors the Savior. We could put it this way. Separation from sin is the way I worship the Savior who died for me. I keep the feast. And he says here, you need to keep the feast without some things and with some things. Look at verse eight. Keep the feast, let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. And then he says, on the positive, you should keep it with sincerity and truth. Worship that honors Christ does not contain malice. And the word malice uh, seems to indicate thoughts and behaviors which are intrinsically evil. And the word wickedness in a little different emphasis, um, talks about thoughts and behaviors which are evil in their effect. Now, you know what these two words do when put together? They, They contain a definition of all sin. And I believe what God would have us to understand is this. When we worship God, when we try to live in worship to him, there cannot be any sin whatsoever involved. These two words are are sort of a comprehensive list of sins. In contrast to this, worship that honors Christ is to be characterized by sincerity. Uh, Literally an unmixed substance. The the, the root meaning here is judged by the light. And and, uh, one of the the ways it would have been used in ancient Greece was was judging a piece of alabaster pottery or or, something uh, that's kind of translucent. And if, if those pottery pieces had flaws, they would stick wax or other things in there. So when you'd look at it, you'd go, wow, this looks really great. But if you held it up to the light, as the light shone through the, the pottery, you could see lighter and darker spots and you could tell if there was a flaw. And of course, that, that became sort of a metaphor for integrity, for, for hi- trying to hide something. You know, you, you can smear a little paint over a hole in the wall and maybe people won't notice, you know, that kind of a thing. David talked about integrity in the Old Testament. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Clearly, he's talking about prayer. And he says, I cannot come to God and expect to be heard just because I'm talking. 
It's the condition of my heart when I come. Uh, God isn't looking to see how much we do for him. He's looking for the quality of what we do for him. We're coming with a quality of a sincere heart. Apostle Paul talked about prayer, and he said this, I desire that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. I don't think the essential instruction is this. I think the essential instruction is about this. It's about holy hands. Am I lifting up holy hands to God? It's not what is my posture when I pray. We can see examples in the scripture of of laying, the word prostrate means lying down. Means lying down flat in front of God as they would do before the king. Or to kneel, or to stand with hands up. But the emphasis here is on holy hands. Holy hands. Am I coming to God with holy hands? Here's a response from God to some people who tried to worship him when they had sin in their lives. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. They've been doing sin. And so it's not about how how many songs we sing. It's not about how much money we give or how many prayers we pray or how long the sermon is, although God does favor long sermons. But (laughs) it's not about that. It's about what's going on in here, in our inner person. Are we coming in sincerity? And then are we coming in truth? And the word truth, the literal meaning, is kind of close to the word for sincerity. It means plain to see. It means nothing concealed. The word truth in the scripture is used uh, two key ways. One is, it, you know, the truth of God, the content of the Bible, you know, the truth that way. But it's also referred to honesty, would be a word for us. Are you coming to God honestly? Which, again, is very similar to the idea of sincerity. Um, Jesus talked about this. He used this word And he said, uh, he began to say to his disciples, beware of the leaven, beware of the sinful impact of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. See, that's offering a prayer, but not sincerely. That's hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. This is the foolishness. This is the foolishness of our human sinful way of thinking. We think, I can come to church and I can you know, sing the song or do the deed or, or serve in a wana or whatever I'm going to do. I know I've got this sin going on, but I'm going to do all this stuff and God's going to be happy with it. And Jesus himself said, listen, everything's going to be uncovered. So why not uncover it now, deal with it now, and then come and offer God righteous worship. If we bring these two concepts together, we understand that worship that honors Christ comes from people who don't try to mix sin and righteousness. That's true of us as individuals, and it needs to be true of our church. In other words, God knows that God has not put me in charge of inspecting every single person's life who walks in the door. God knows what's going on in your life, and it's not my job to to sort of filter out. You know, if you went back uh, a couple of hundred years 
certain, uh, certain church groups who used to have a meeting in the middle of the week in which you would come and the elders would examine you to see if you were righteous enough to have the Lord's Supper on Sunday. And it was pretty, pretty strict by not necessarily biblical standards. You know, you're doing this, or you're doing that, whatever. That's not my job. That's your job. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread. You know, that's, that's your job. But there is a sense in which all of us as a body of believers need to be taking care that if we know somebody is living rebelliously and unrepentantly in sin, that, and, and if we have chosen to do nothing as individuals or as a body, then we are coming to worship God trying to think, well, I know there's all this sin going on over here, but, but I don't really have any excuse, but I'm just going to let it go on, and I'm going to come and try to worship God. And God says, no. We can't do it as individuals. We can't do it as a body. Worship that honors Christ comes from people who don't try to mix sin and righteousness. Uh, Hugh Pottle used to sit right next to Marion right there until a couple weeks ago when he went to be with the Lord. And he told me one of the funniest stories I have ever heard about him and his brother. And when I shared it with his brother, his brother goes, yeah, I was the other guy. And he named the people that were involved. And, and uh, so it was a true story, unlike... Maybe some stories, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> and when he was teenagers, they had a farm. And uh, the boys were kind of in charge of the milking and, and all that thing. And I, I suppose it was hand milking back in that day. I don't know. But, but yeah. And, uh, and then the milk would go to the Carnation Dairy, which is now the Everyday Fitness Building down here. And the, the inspector from Carnation came out to the farm, and he said... Uh, the two boys were there. He said, Who, who's in charge here? And they said, well, this one or that one. And he said, well, I tell you what, boys, we would like you to send the milk and the manure in separate cans, and we'll mix them to our own specification. <laughs> Apparently, they'd had a little contamination issue. <laughs> How do you suppose God feels when someone tries to offer him worship mixed with sin. Heavenly Father, help us. We wouldn't drink that milk. We wouldn't offer it to anybody. And we sure shouldn't offer worship that looks like that mixed with sin. Help us. We are human beings with sin natures and we we struggle to do the right thing we struggle to do it individually we struggle to do it corporately please help us please help us bring you pure worship and when we do uh, please take honor in that and please uh, speak to us through that i pray in christ's name amen